0: That is the sound you never want to hear. It's the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, you know you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevy. I'm the producer and host of this program, and I do this because I was one mile from Three Mile Island when it happened. On today's podcast, I'm going to be interviewing two very wise, smart, wonderful individuals on issues related to food safety in the wake of Fukushima and what you can do to help protect your family. And then at the end of the show, you're going to hear the audio from a video PSA that Jon Stewart will probably not be playing on The Daily Show. Today is Tuesday, April 3, 2012. One year and 23 days since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11 of 2011. And here is the latest nuclear news. Out of Japan, the news is continuing to not be good about Fukushima. Uh, reactor 2 containment vessel has shown a lethal 73 sieverts per hour of radiation, which is too hot for even the robots to be able to do their work inside. For a human being, exposure to 73 sieverts for one minute would cause nausea, and after seven minutes of exposure would cause death within a month. These statistics, according to Tokyo Electric Power Company, they actually admitted it. The experts said that the high radiation level is due to the shallow level of coolant water, less than two feet, in the containment vessel. TEPCO has few clues as to the status of reactors 1 and 3, which also suffered meltdowns, because there has been no access to the insides of those reactors. There's also danger from the precarious nature of Unit 4 at Fukushima, which is where the spent fuel pond is held above the very decrepit and falling apart building. And as of this evening, Japan is on high alert for a typhoon-class storm. The storm will hit Tokyo and then move north to northern Japan this evening into the Fukushima Daiichi area. Because of the precarious conditions of the spent fuel pond atop the damaged reactor, any shift in the ground or push of the air, heavy air on this, is uh, not a good idea. In Japan, a politician elected from the Hokkaido area has made demands to the national government to do something against the mayor of Sapporo City. Why, you may ask? Because the mayor of Sapporo has declared that he doesn't want disaster debris from Miyagi and Awate prefectures in his city. The Minister of Environment, in response, promises some type of action so that the mayor starts to think like everyone else in the diet. Minister of Environment Hosano said, quote, We will explain to him again so that he understands, and he would request again that Sapporo City accept the debris. The mayor of Sapporo had expressed suspicion that the disaster debris was contaminated with radioactive materials. Now, on better news out of Japan, former Prime Minister Naoto Kan, who was Prime Minister when the disaster happened, has joined with other ruling Democratic Party leaders in Japan to seek to create a roadmap for ending the country's reliance on nuclear power. Khan, who was the Japanese leader when the crisis erupted last March, told reporters to prepare for the group's launch. He said, thinking about the future of Japan, why don't we seek a society that does not rely on nuclear power? The group is intended to properly discuss the time frame for realizing that goal. In other words, there's been an outbreak of nuclear sanity in Japan. Let's hope that it is contagious. Better news out of Japan as well. TEPCO has shut down reactor number six at its Kashiwazi Kahari nuclear plant in Nagate Prefecture. This as of last Sunday. What that means is of Japanese of the Japanese fifty four nuclear reactors. 53 are currently offline, which means there's only one to go, and Japan will be nuclear-free. There have been demonstrations throughout the country asking that that the country stop having any nuclear energy at all. The government and the corporations are pushing for it, but yet, even though 53 of the 54 have been shut down, there have been no widespread blackouts. Not rolling blackouts, no power loss, no loss of electricity in the country, which makes one wonder why it was wanted or needed in the first place. Here in the U.S., uh, we have a big, scary win here in California. The San Onofre nuclear power plant on the Southern California coast will remain shut down indefinitely, while a team of federal inspectors determines why several relatively new tubes in the steam generators became so eroded the tests found they could rupture and release radioactive water. The Unit 3 reactor at San Onofre, which is just 45 miles north of San Diego, was shut down on January 3rd after a water leak resulted from a ruptured tube in the steam generator. At the same time, the NRC was investigating the other steam generators at Unit 2 and discovered that over 800 of the pipes were eroded, some to a level showing the equivalent of 20 years of use. This for steam generators that were replaced only two years ago, in 2009. So at this point, for the first time ever, the NRC has shut down a nuclear power plant for safety considerations. We'll keep going with the updates on that one. Also, the NRC has been doing its own usual games. It has violated its own environmental protection mandate as five commissioners have rejected renewable alternatives at the Davis-Bessey Atomic Reactor. This happened on the anniversary of Three Mile Island on March 28th. When the NRC commissioners voted unanimously to reject an environmental coalition's contention that wind power and solar could easily replace the electric generated by Davis-Bessey, which is located near Toledo, Ohio. This is the nuclear unit that's been offline because it's had a cracked concrete containment vessel. Now, the, uh, the nuclear, the anti-nuclear activists plan to appeal to the federal courts at the first opportunity. In the meantime, Congressman Dennis Kucinich, who is a Democrat from Ohio, and a longtime watchdog and Bessie Davis, has announced that all four of the public interest groups, which is being led by Beyond Nuclear, simply asked for an opportunity to present evidence to show that the power output of Davis-Bessie could be replaced by other sources of energy, such as wind and solar. It is critical to get this information in the public record so the public is aware of existing alternatives. The nuclear industry knows that it can be replaced. I hope the NRC's decision does not indicate that the NRC denies transparency when it comes to examining the financial, design, construction, or physical limitations of the nuclear industry. Also with the NRC, the regulators have okayed the start of summer. Doesn't that sound like fun? Actually, what they have approved is two new reactors to be built at the VC Summer Plant in South Carolina, which is not much fun. These are the second new U.S.-built projects, nuclear projects, to receive combined construction and operation licenses in the last six months. The first one was Votel in Georgia. Now, it's interesting that even though the plants in Southern California, South Carolina have not yet been built, there have already been cost overruns, according to South Carolina Gas and Electric. The utility said that its share of these costs will be about $138 million of the $188 million originally disclosed. There are odds being taken now here at Nuclear Hot Seat on how much of those costs are going to be passed on to the rate In Los Angeles, we had rain about a week ago, and the recent rain was a rainout. It carried radiation over five times normal, according to Radiation Station in Santa Monica. The rain came in at a whopping 506% above normal background radiation, more than high enough to quality as a hazmat situation for the California Highway Patrol, though they are not treating it as such. This is the hottest L.A. rain detected with the Inspector Alert nuclear radiation monitors in over 1,500 radiation tests taken since last year's Fukushima Daiichi accident. We're going to be getting on to some food safety issues, and I'll get back to the last of the uh, radiation news. But right now, I am delighted to be interviewing two women who are knowledgeable, articulate, and um, qualifies being heroes within the nuclear movement for me. Kimberly Roberson is currently a stay-at-home mom of a happy 4-year-old son. However, she has worked on anti-nuclear and other social justice campaigns for Sane Freeze, CalPerg, and Greenpeace. She's worked in Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and San Francisco, studied holistic nutrition, served on the board of the National Association of Nutrition Professionals, and has lobbied on environmental and natural health issues at the state and federal levels. She is the author of the new book, Silence, deafening, Fukushima fallout, a mother's response. Kim, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi,
1: everybody. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Terrific. And uh, the other woman I'm interviewing today is Mary Beth Brannigan, an award-winning filmmaker and co-director of EON, the Ecological Options Network. EON's films have been broadcast nationally and internationally, have been screened at the United Nations, the U.S. Congress, parliaments, and universities worldwide. She founded the 10-year-long successful movement to prevent construction of a nuclear waste dump in Ward Valley, California, on the Colorado River, the source of drinking water for millions of people. She and her partner, Jim Heddle, have produced many documentaries on the nuclear issue. Mary Beth, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. So, Kim, to get us started, the two of you are involved in the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network. What is that, and how did it get started?
1: Well, I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk about it. Um, it was over a year ago, back on April 1st, 2011, when I started a petition. Just I was staying at home with my son when word came about the meltdown. At that time, we thought it was one meltdown. And I was rather limited in what I could do to try to make a difference. But I noticed that there had been some online petitions through various organizations, so I decided to start a petition calling for food monitoring in California, in the United States. Because based on my past experience, I knew that when a nuclear meltdown happens, it affects the surrounding environment. I'm an older mom. Many of the moms that I hang out with with their kids don't really remember Chernobyl. But I happened to be working in Greenpeace in Washington, D.C. at the time when Chernobyl, well, a few years after Chernobyl, actually. But I was working in the photo department, and I remember going through photos of deformed farm animals from the Chernobyl area that farmers had sent Greenpeace. And these were the pictures that later went on to be shown in Newsweek and Time magazine.
0: So
1: I knew So you had a funny. you had
0: an operating awareness of what the dangers were to the food supply as a result of exposure to nuclear radiation.
1: Absolutely. And then I'd worked as a nutritionist for about ten years after leaving environmental activism work. And so the two things were all of a sudden everything came together. It collided. You know, parenthood. The nutrition aspect and definitely the nuclear fallout aspect, because here in California we're directly on the jet stream, a very powerful environmental entity, you know the force of nature coming over from Japan, and we were in the middle of a really intense rainy season at the time, so um I was hyper aware of that, and I started the petition, thinking that it would just get all kinds of signatures you know go viral
0: and what happened with the petition? <laughs>
1: Well, um, the petition is written to Senator Dianne Feinstein, Senator Barbara Boxer, uh, President Barack Obama, asking them to monitor our food supply. And, that sounds
0: pretty um, modest, and what kind of response have you gotten to it?
1: Well, so far, not a lot. We have had the Fukushima Fall Awareness Network came around a few months after this petition was started, and it the petition kind of helped us to get our, you know, kind of as a calling card to get some meetings. And... Um, We've met four times now with Senator Barbara Boxer's team and also Dianne Feinstein's team, and once directly um, with Senator Feinstein kind of at a, at a chance meeting in the hallway, letting her know that we were aware, we still are very aware of cesium 137 and other very long-lived radioisotopes being found in California topsoil as tested by University of California, Berkeley School of Nuclear Engineers. Even though the EPA is not testing now, or they are four times a year, and the FDA is not testing, and National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association is not testing. We do have Cal, we have, you know, professors of nuclear science and their students judiciously testing um, topsoil and various agricultural products and posting it on their website. So we've known for a while now that we do have a problem with our food supply. in California... Mm-hmm produces over four hundred and fifty varieties of um, vegetables and fruits, walnuts, different types of nuts and berries, and we're also the nation's number one producer of dairy products.
0: Okay, let's put so. the let's put the, the pause button on that. I want to go back to talking about the radiation. Mary Beth, are you I understand you're more familiar with the kind of statistics that were coming through from uh Cal Berkeley. Uh, can you speak to some of what's been discovered?
2: Well at first, the uh, radiation was um, falling on uh, berries and uh, broad-leafed plants like uh, kale and arugula and spinach, and those were the sorts of foods that were tested until June of 2011 when they just stopped testing them.
0: Why was the testing stopped? Please? Well,
2: I think at that point they, they were beginning to... Um, see the levels dropping off because the um the initial surge of radiation that was raining down had gotten into the soil by that time and the next crops um they they didn't I mean they could have checked those but they didn't um but the next crops uh would be affected by the uh the radiation in the in the topsoil it would logically um follow so they they did test the the soil and the latest um soil testing has been from Oakland, California and that was last tested in September of 2011 and that's more of, than 6 months ago at this point i know and as of then there were elevated levels of cesium 134 and cesium 137 you see cesium 137 has um a 30 Year half life, which means that it's going to be hazardous for 300 years. And the above ground testing that was done in the 16th, 60s uh, has left a lot of cesium 137. So, um, you know, I, ways- at
0: one point I spoke with a man who is a soil erosion engineer, and he said he had done his PhD paper on the fact that cesium is used as a marker for soil erosion. If there's no cesium in the soil at this point, uh, it means that erosion has taken place because he said that there was no place on Earth that had not been contaminated, at least somewhat by the fallout from um, from the bomb testing that we did.
2: Right. Oh, my gosh. Well, so now the way they can tell that old cesium that was deposited from the new um, emanating from Fukushima is if it's in a one-to-one ratio with cesium-134, which has a half-life of two years, which means its hazardous life um, would then be uh, 20 years. So the the soil, as of uh, September, six months ago, was still showing... That that was the case now, milk and rainwater are the other two things that they've continued to test um and the milk was last tested. actually, you can't tell from their chart when it really was tested, but it was testing of milk that had best buy dates of February sixteenth twenty twelve and that did show elevated levels of cesium 134 and cesium 137.
0: This was milk from cows in the uh greater San Francisco area?
2: Well, it it I'm assuming yes. It didn't specify except that it was homogenized pasteurized milk. They were also um originally checking raw milk and goat's milk and then uh even um, uh, Sonoma County and um, Sacramento County, but they they didn't specify beyond the fact that it was homogenized and pasteurized, this last batch. And then they tested in February, uh, in the week of um, February 10th to the 17th of 2012, they did test the rainwater. I can't remember how much rain we got then, um, but it didn't show any levels of radiation. And I have to admit, we did get just recently our own um, MedCom Inspector Geiger counter, you know, the Mm best you can buy, the consumer um, grade, and I have not found any in the rainwater yet.
0: My understanding is that a rainout happens if the rain happens at the same time that the jet stream is particularly intense overhead. And I, There's so a site in telecast of... where I where if it's raining, I will check to see where the uh, where the jet stream is that day and modify whether I'm going out or not based on what it is I find. The Japanese professor that we just had a
2: visit us and in, um, to speak about Fukushima, we arranged events for him in the Bay Area, uh, was so careful not to get rained on. And that's the way I was at first uh, last year when I first knew about it. But I must say I've gotten much more lax, and it's good to have these reminders.
0: So that brings us to an important topic, and that is what have you done to protect yourselves and your families knowing what you do about, radiation, how prevalent it is, and how it can get into the food chain. Kim, you want to get us started on it?
1: Well, um, I definitely have been super, super careful with my little boy. You know, he's four years old, and if it rains, I make sure that he has a hood on and that he's wearing his boots. We've been taking our shoes off and leaving at the door and sitting at the door for over a year now, which ironically is something that the Japanese people have been doing for centuries. Um, so external exposures, we try to keep those down to a minimum. And it gets a little funny sometimes when he wants to jump in rain puddles, you know. One day I'll have to explain this to him when he's older. <laughs> I've had kind of the reactions that I've had. Um, I have to laugh at myself sometimes. But I try not to get too careful because children are so much more vulnerable than than a grown-up is, you know. Mm-hmm. As far as internal exposures, um, for the first several months I, was, um, I had already kind of hoarded. Boxed um milk and uh almond milk and rice milk and uh canned goods, I kind of hunkered down for a while and I think my last boxed milk ran out about a week before the anniversary the one year anniversary of shima if you can believe that that's how intense I was about it, but I also um knew that you know we live in the real world and i had to, i couldn't you know live in a bubble, so I started using um liquid steel drops. In our water
0: that's liquid smoking. zeolite
1: zeolite, mm-hmm. and I had read that after Chernobyl children in in that region were given zeolite cookies as a precautionary measure, and it's um it's known to remove heavy metals to chelate heavy metals from the system so i was I called a few companies that produce it. I made sure that I was sourcing a very clean product and used it very cautiously with him, just a couple of drops a day. Whereas myself I would use more and with my husband too. Kim, why
2: don't um,
1: you men why don't you mention yeah. what zeolite is from? Well, it's a mineral and it's um it has a unique molecular cage that entraps um the heavy metal and removes it from your body via secretions like urine, and um, the mm-hmm. species My understanding
2: is it's uh from volcanic volcanic ash.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. And Gabriel Cousins who's a noted um naturopathic doctor, I believe he is, and mm-hmm. or maybe he's a medical doctor. He's he's calling it like, you know, God's gift for this whole disaster. If there's there's an answer for everything that that's provided in nature, then Zeolite would be the answer for this. And in fact it has been used um to, as an agricultural um tool to prevent absorption of radionuclides into crops, um, uh, as a boron. They've used that on the big island of Hawaii. I know boron has been used since this whole thing started by dairy farmers there, and that's documented online. So um, zeolite does have this history. Also, apple pectin is um, very powerful in helping to remove um, heavy metals from the body, and radioisotopes isotopes are heavy metals. So no, none of these companies, supplement companies, if you were to source apple pectin in a supplement, they're not going to say, oh, use this to, you know, chelate cesium-137 from your body, but what they will say is that these do help to remove heavy metals from your system. Right,
0: and I know at uh, Chernobyl they were also using, I think it was blue-green algae or spirulina as well, mm-hmm. just because that um, helped yeah. with um, uh, the, the thyroid, because it, there's there's iodine in it and it would help support the thyroid.
1: That's true, and also... Um, well, I've been using spirulina. That's a, Well, not spirulina, but blue-green algae. That's something else I mix in with my son's liquid vitamins. I'll give him a drop of zeolite, um, like 5 mLs of a liquid vitamin, good high-quality vitamin, and then I'll add a capsule of blue-green algae. I'll do the blue-green algae for that maybe three times a week and never after 3 o'clock in the afternoon because it it's a little energizing, you know, <laughs> for after 3.
0: I'm going to have to think uh, of that when my terrible. energy gets
1: low. Mary Beth, Oh, Albert, blue blue algae algae's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It really is. It does a lot of great things. Mary Beth,
0: have there been any changes that you've made to your diet or your lifestyle since Fukushima?
2: Well, uh, at first I wasn't uh, and still I, I avoid mushrooms because mushrooms um uh, many of them hyper accumulate heavy metals. And um and I avoid uh Seaweed now, I, I really went on a seaweed buying binge as soon as, uh, I found out about the meltdowns. So that, so we, did I. Yeah, everybody, do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a supply, a pre-Fukushima supply? And yeah, it's
1: important uh, to note you don't want to go out buying seaweed right now because that's not going to be a No, reason. it's a very bad idea right now.
0: I actually have a story about seaweed in California that will come up uh, in a moment on the show. But go back to your explanation, please.
2: Right. I just um, was working with that study, too, Libby, <laughs> that just came out about the seaweed. Um, and uh, I stopped using anything that I could see was from Japan. Bless their hearts, but it just isn't worth it because we don't know where in Japan these would come. the The product would come from. Uh, I used to have a, a one product that I used all the time. It's a hot sesame oil that I loved, but it's brewed there. So that's um, those are the main things. At first, I I wasn't eating leafy greens, but I think um, now actually it's best to eat increase in fact your intake of leafy greens that um the leafy greens along with uh blue green algae, spirulina, those kinds of foods are are really radio protective.
0: And one of the things that can be done that I know about is um to wash the leafy greens, uh let them soak for a little bit in water that has had either zeolite or bentonite clay added to it, so it can absorb anything that might be clinging to it. That's a good idea.
2: Can I add a few things? Sure. Well, just one more thing, Um, and that is I've been more conscious of taking liquid minerals, because our bodies recognize many of these heavy metals um, as a a mineral that our body needs, and if you're deficient in a mineral, you'll suck uh, up the um, Radioactive uh, metals more readily. So if you keep yes. your your mineral levels up, then uh, you're you're less likely to do that.
1: You want to do that with a good multivitamin and mineral supplement. Find it a mm-hmm. source of good company, and it's really important to note too that spirulina and blue green algae are grown very differently. Algae is harvested from the wild, and spirulina is grown in tanks. So spirulina is a more controlled environment. So, um, and the other thing is I'm doing flax oil now. No more fish oil. Flax oil is the perfect um, substitute for using fish oil.
0: Hmm. Well, this is phenomenal information. And what I want to do now is shift topic a little bit because, Kim, you have written a really beautiful book. It's just been published. Hot off the presses. I think even the website right now is a little bit sticky with the ink from being printed. Um, it's called Silence Deafening, Fukushima Fallout, A Mother's Response. Can you tell us briefly what you put into the book? Silence,
1: deafening, Fukushima, Fallout, A Mother's Response is a call to action for parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, caregivers to be aware and to act on the fact that we have just suffered the worst nuclear disaster in world history nuclear meltdowns in one location and the crisis is far from over and the book has um, interactive appendixes which help people who might not be aware of this in the past to get them motivated and involved there are media links there are wonderful videos produced by Jim Heddle and Mary Beth Rangan. Um there are petitions to sign and great organizations to be connected with to really help to empower people it's not the type of book that you just put down and walk away from. It's the type of book to become um, aware of our our new criticality, new awareness now, and how we can best protect our children. It's available now on Amazon Kindle, and it will be up on all major EPUB platforms within the next week or so. And it's just basically my journey of you know going through the shock of this horrible catastrophe not even being... Acknowledged at all in our media, and I was, you know, I was just in a daze, wondering when would somebody come forward, and finally start to talk about it. It's like we were just in this collective state of denial, and um, so it was just kind of, you know, pulling stories from from my memory about Chernobyl, ab- about different things that have happened over the years, to try to educate a younger generation of of mother and father, who really had no idea, and still for the most part, don't
0: understand what's going on. So is there a website people can go to? Uh, I I know that the website is being completed even as we're speaking now, but by the time people listen to this, it will probably be ready. What's the web address?
1: Thank you. It's www.silencedeafening.com, silencedeafening.com. And there will be a link on there for some health health safety precautionary measures, some of the things we talked about today and some other things that people can do. So we're looking at it as being a a way to launch the book, to tell people about Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, and then how we can try to help the people of Japan, how we can try to help ourselves, and how we can get our public officials to act on this very, very serious crisis.
0: It's a beautiful book. It's wonderfully well-written, and I've had an opportunity to read it. And if people haven't read it yet, I strongly urge you to take a look. It's got great information, and it's written with great heart and great soul. I want to thank both you, Kim, and you, Mary Beth, for being on the podcast today. The information was great, and I look forward to staying in touch with you and having you back on the show at some future date.
2: Thank you. Thank you
0: so much. And if you could stay on the line just a little bit longer, uh, I think you will enjoy the rest of the podcast because some of this is very relevant to what we've been discussing. Going to the story about iodine, radioactive iodine from Fukushima being found in California, Kelp, This is according to a new scientific study that kelp off the Southern California coast was contaminated with radioisotopes a month after Japan's Fukushima accident, a sign that the spilled radiation reached the state's urban coastline. Scientists from California State University Long Beach tested giant kelp collected in the ocean off Orange County and other locations after the March 2011 accident the largest concentration of radioactive iodine was about 250 times higher than levels found in kelp before the accident. We saw it in all the California kelp blades before we sampled, according to one Cal State biology professor who specializes in kelp. The level of radioactive iodine, 2.5 becquerels per gram of dry weight, was well above levels sampled in kelp prior to the Fukushima release. About 250 times higher than the concentration found in giant kelp off British Columbia before Fukushima. Now, what was found was iodine-131, and while it has a half-life of 8 days, the active radioactive life is 80 days. You always multiply by at least 10 to find that out. So, the iodine-131 was active for 80 days, and one would think that the problem would have passed by now. However, this was a completely separate article that appeared yesterday uh, about Dartmouth scientists tracking radioactive iodine uh after the Fukushima meltdown. And what they said was that in addition to iodine-131, they also found iodine-129. Now, iodine-129 is released at the same time as iodine-131. It is not as radioactive, which makes it much harder to measure, but it is much longer-lasting, which is one of the greatest understatements I've run across, because the half-life of iodine-129 is 15.7 million years. It concentrates in certain areas over time, and in doing so may become more hazardous. Because these two forms of radiation are linked to each other and generated at the same time at a ratio of three parts iodine-131 to one part iodine-129, and the two substances travel together, we can use the iodine-131 as a marker of how much iodine-129 is there. So while in California, in the kelp beds, there may be no indication now because the time has passed for the iodine-131. That doesn't mean that we're out of the woods yet when it comes to radiation. And if, indeed, radioactive iodine-129 is there now, it's there to stay. Here's the most outrageous uh food-related radiation story I have come across, Uh and that is that it's official that with the help of the United Nations, Japan is sending canned fish from northeast Japan, meaning the area around Fukushima, to people in developing countries in the world so that fisheries and the disaster-affected areas can recover and, quote-unquote, baseless rumors disappear. The fish cans will go to Cambodia and four other countries. We haven't figured out which those countries are. And will be used in school lunches to feed school children. Now, the Japanese government exchanged letters with the U.N. World Food Program to arrange this giving away of uh, the fish from Fukushima. This was so that people in developing, in developing countries will be able to eat processed marine products made in the areas affected by the nuclear meltdown. The purpose is to promote the recovery of fishing industries in the disaster-affected areas, and quote, unquote. I just have to to dispel baseless rumors that the food in Japan is contaminated with radioactive materials. Now here's another story that came out on April 1st, and that is that Fukushima fishermen are in a state of hopelessness after nuclear contamination postpones their fishing season. This is not just in the ocean, it's in the rivers. Fishermen in uh, the prefecture's Okazui. Oh, Okazui region, my apologies to the Japanese for murdering their language, but in this region near Fukushima were left hopeless after radioactive cesium exceeding the allowable limit was detected in some river fish. This forced them to postpone this year's fishing season indefinitely. These fish samples were caught in the river in mid-March and they registered 119 to 139 becquerels of radioactive cesium per kilogram. So it's too radioactive for the fishermen to fish, but it's okay to send the fish in cans to Cambodia and other developing nations where they probably won't be doing much developing. Okay, um, we've had a lot of holistic information today about keeping our health high, so I just want to share something that I think is really important for us to know. Friends of Earth has launched a television ad campaign. They did this yesterday, April 2nd, targeting Southern California Edison, the operator of the troubled San Onofre nuclear reactors. While the facility is currently shut down by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Friends of Earth wants to make certain it stays that way. The ad is running this week on major cable news outlets in Los Angeles and the San Diego media markets. There is a visual connected with it. We only have the audio here. But rather than try to describe it to you, why don't you listen and discover for yourself the power of media that's on our side. A nuclear crisis. A defective tube ruptures leaking radiation causing an emergency reactor shutdown. But it's not Fukushima, Japan. It's the San Onofre nuclear reactor site near the homes of 8 million Californians. So, why is Southern California Edison trying to reopen the plant, covering up evidence of more reactor effects? Profits. Demand that the safety of your family come first. Keep the San Onofre nuclear reactors shut down. Amen and A women to that. So, in closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 3rd, 2012. As of this week, we are syndicated to airprogressive.org, a streaming web radio network uh, that is also going to have a broadcast component before too long of course you can always find us any hour of the day or night at nuclearhotseat.com on facebook or you can subscribe to our itunes podcast as a matter of fact if you go to the website and look at all those little links up at the top all those little buttons you can automatically follow us on twitter facebook and subscribe to the rss feed of our podcast so you don't even have to hassle with itunes And a request, if you have a moment, go to the new Facebook site of Nuclear Hot Seat and click on like. It will help us show up in the Google algorithm. So for today, this is Libby Halevi of of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Be safe, be well, and I will speak with you again next week.